Grace and peace to you, and welcome to a sermon podcast from Richfield United Methodist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Sign up for weekly digital content at richfieldumc.org. Subscribe, share, and get out there with Jesus to heal a broken world. Thanks for listening, and we hope you have a good experience. This podcast is the sermon on July 21st, 2019. Back to the Future is part four of the five-part worship series, A Time to Act. The preacher is Reverend Nate Melcher, and the scripture is Acts of the Apostles, chapter 2, verses 22 through 36. Hear this from Acts of the Apostles, chapter 2, starting with verse 22. You that are Israelites, says Simon Peter, listen to what I have to say. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with deeds of power, wonders, and signs that God did through him among you, as you yourselves know, this man, handed over to you according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of those outside the law. But God raised him up, having freed him from death, because it was impossible for him to be held in its power. For David says concerning him in the Psalms, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand so that I will not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. Moreover, my flesh will live in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One experience corruption. You have made known to me the ways of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Fellow Israelites, I may say to you confidently, of our ancestor David, that he both died and was buried in his tomb with us to this day. Since he was a prophet, he knew that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would put one of his descendants on his throne. Foreseeing this, David spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah, saying he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh experience corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that all of us are witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Almighty the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you both see and hear. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Therefore let the entire house of Israel know with certainty that God has made him both Lord and Messiah, this Jesus whom you crucified." The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. A few weeks ago, I had a night off, and uh, so I decided to go to the movies, and I went and I saw the new Spider-Man movie. Anybody seen the new Spider-Man? It's pretty good. So we could all all go, field trip. But I saw the new Spider-Man movie. I saw most of the new Spider-Man movie. I showed up five minutes late. I'm not the person who likes to go to see all the trailers ahead of time, so if it says it starts at 9 o'clock, I'm going to show up at 9.15, but I miscalculated, and it turns out I missed the first five minutes. But I thought, no big deal. I kind of know the trajectory of how a Spider-Man movie is going to go. If it happened in the first five minutes, I'll probably be okay. So I like the movie, and then I go to talk to my friends about it, and they say, oh, did you like this scene when that happened? Oh, no, I guess I missed that part. Oh, what about when this happened? Oh, no, I missed that part, too. Did you like the way that they tied it to the movie that came before it a couple months ago? Like, no, I guess not, because I missed it. So every part that was apparently my friend's favorite part were the parts that I missed in the first five minutes. Great. Uh, And while I liked the movie, I just don't know if I have an extra two hours to go see it again just to see the first five minutes of it. 
have you ever walked into a movie late? Maybe you, you've tried to, uh, to play catch up on the story, but, but if the beginning was that important, you never quite feel like you're there. How about the ending? Have you ever missed the ending of a movie? There's a movie in my life that I didn't see it until the fourth time that I finally see the end of the movie. There's this family movie called the Lego movie. You know Legos, the, the building bricks? There's a great kids movie, family movie called the Lego movie, where it's basically animated and all the characters in this Lego world are moving around and it's a great, great movie. It's an all ages thing for sure. So I took uh, Gertie when she was about two and a half, so a young kid, we're first moving the theater, and I can tell it's almost the ending of the movie, it's almost the climax, and we gotta go to the restroom. All right, well, when a two and a half year old's gotta go to the restroom, you go to the restroom, right? So we go to the restroom, uh, do our thing, we come back, and there's the credits on the screen. All right, all right, that's fine, that's fine. Well, this is a good movie. I want to see it again. So we went a few weeks later as a family, and B was a newborn, and a newborn will sleep through anything. So we were able to go, and then at the end of the movie, it's time for the restroom again with the two-and-a-half-year-old. So all right, all right, let's go to the bathroom. Let's do our thing really quick. We come back. It's the credits again. So I missed it twice. So I thought, okay, there's only one way to solve this. We'll get it on Blu-ray when it comes out on disc. So I get the Blu-ray. We're sitting down watching it as a family. Now she's not quite three. Again, at the ending, it's bathroom time. So I take her to the bathroom, and uh, the rest of the family was watching, and for some reason, I didn't remember there's a pause button on a disc, but I missed the ending again. So finally, I pulled it out on my own to watch the ending, and I was blown away. And I will not spoil this ending for you, but there is seriously something that only happens in these particular three minutes of the Lego movie, and maybe you can kind of guess what's happening in a movie about toys that only happens at the end of this movie, but when it happened, I was shocked, and I couldn't believe I'd experienced this movie almost three or four times before I finally saw the end. Uh, it's weird to tell people how much you really like a movie when you actually haven't seen the ending of it for six months or so. A good story has no skippable parts. A good story has no skippable parts. Parts get emphasized. We have favorite scenes. Some are more memorable. But we have to watch for what we skip. I find it fascinating that the scripture that we read today, Acts chapter 2, verses 22 through 36, are often seen as skippable. I'll tell you why. Uh, there's something called the Revised Common Lectionary, the RCL. And long story short, the lectionary is the system in which uh, a bunch of people got together, uh, probably a bunch of old white guys got together, I don't know, but a bunch of them got together and decided we are going to create a system where uh, if you as a church want to read the Bible in about three years, you'll do these readings. So there'll be an Old Testament reading and a psalm and a gospel lesson and a New Testament reading, like something from one of Paul's letters. And you can hit the beats of pretty much the whole Bible if you do these readings. Now, most churches will, some will do all four or at least a couple. Most churches just do one if they're following the lectionary. And that's where this passage ends up skippable because this passage only appears once in the lectionary and it's going head to head with John 20, which is Doubting Thomas. And that's a pretty popular story. My hunch is that on the second Sunday after Easter, where the church is following the lectionary, most are going to look at Doubting Thomas 
as opposed to this piece from Acts 2. And as for the Pentecost story in the lectionary, well, when that shows up all three years, the part that shows up is what we read last week, which is the tongues of fire and the wind of the Holy Spirit, not this part. So this small passage gets skipped, and it's mostly quoting Psalms, and Simon Peter's even repeating himself a little bit. So why is it here anyway? Well, it's the first time that this gathered group in the upper room learns about Jesus. Some of them had heard about Jesus before, the group of the 12 disciples, of course, all the women who had been following and supporting Jesus, uh, the crowd that was 120 uh, just a little bit before, but it's during the festival of Pentecost, so the crowd has expanded, and they're there from all four corners of the known world. So to many who are there, Jesus is new, and this is the first they hear about him. This passage is sandwiched between two key questions. Next week's question is when they ask, what must we do? But then last week's question, they ask, what does this mean? And in between here is Simon Peter saying, I'll take a stab at it. And Peter steps up. Now, two weeks ago, he stepped up to say, God wants us to be 12 again, this whole team, so we can lead. And then last week, he stepped up to respond to this question, what does this mean? And now here he is continuing. And I have to remind you, Peter is the man who denied Jesus three times, who sank when he tried to walk on water, who said, no, Jesus, you don't have to die. Quit talking like that. You're making me uncomfortable. Told Jesus, don't have me be one of your disciples. I'm just a sinner. And no, you're never going to wash my feet. You'll wash other people's feet, but never mine. This guy keeps stumbling but now he's the one who stumbles up. And I keep emphasizing that because the people who stumble need to know that Jesus walks with the stumblers every step of the way. So I give kudos to Simon Peter here. When Simon Peter realizes that everyone can understand him and he's got this captive audience, he does the greatest thing he could do. He does a sermon. Well done, Peter. Never miss an opportunity to preach. He has a two-part sermon. He has, I'll throw out some fancy words, he has a pesher and a midrash. It's this pesher, a way of saying, this is that, and a midrash. This relates to that. With this pesher, he's quoting Joel. He says, all these things that this prophet said are going to happen, they're happening. This that he said, it's this. God pours out the Spirit upon all flesh. Children shall prophesy. Your young shall see visions. Your old shall dream dreams. And then here in this passage, he has a midrash, and he brings us all to Jesus. He says, you know David. You know the Psalms and what he wrote there. You know what God has promised in this ancient poetry. You know it's been foretold that someone new would come, and all of this relates to that because here and now, this is Jesus. Peter reaches back in their history to point to the future. He says, what brought you passion then can light your spark now. What God promised then will be fulfilled now and tomorrow. What was dead is then is not only alive, but resurrected now. And when asked, what does this mean? Simon Peter says, it means God's moving. The world's moving and we move too. In this movement, we become part of resurrection, 
part of new life, this Jesus that God has raised up and that all of us are witnesses. Now, I think everyone who was gathered there, I think were prepared to hear such a bold statement. They'd had such a bold experience, and they asked a genuine question, what does this mean? They're ready for a bold response. Yet, I, I can't imagine what would have happened if you had been a latecomer to this Pentecost moment. If you maybe just missed the first five minutes and didn't know what occurred right before that, that might be awkward, I think. These days, it probably wouldn't matter. I mean, we have the instant replay in sports, right? We have reruns on cable. And if that Pentecost moment happened today, there'd probably be at least 50 viral videos because they'd all have their phones out capturing the moment, right? Uh, so here's an example of a very brilliant moment 50 years ago this weekend. Did you experience it? When Neil Armstrong said, that's one small step for man, one giant step for mankind. For those of you who were around, how many of you watched that live? Holy cow, a whole bunch of you. All right. I'm curious, did any of you miss it? You were around, but you didn't get to watch it? My dad didn't get to watch it. So my dad was 15, and he did not get to watch the moon landing live. And why? Well, it was decided that young 15-year-old Gail Melcher it was really important that he attend his UMYF Methodist youth gathering that night. Do you know how many people showed up at West St. Charles United Methodist Church? Two teenagers showed up. The rest were watching the moon landing. I guess sometimes the church doesn't get it right. I don't know, once or twice, right? So can you imagine walking into the upper room right at that instant, the instant when... Uh, instead of being there for the rush of the Holy Spirit and the tongues of fire dancing, everyone's amazed and astonished. Instead, you walk into the middle of Simon Peter's sermon, so you didn't see this ex brilliant experience together, and then you just walk in with the snacks, because they sent you out for snacks, and then Peter preaching, you go, hey, everybody, I brought Cheetos. Why are you on fire? And then Peter starts talking about someone named Jesus, and you think, whoa, back up. Who did we crucify? What are you talking about? The Bible is filled with people who did not experience this Pentecost moment, but they still come to a place of faith. Doubting Thomas is one, for example, right? Uh, we talked about him a moment ago. Although, to be fair to Thomas, Thomas didn't want anything that the other disciples didn't have, which is a profound experience. I think of him as absent Thomas more than doubting Thomas. We can talk about that another time. But we're going to experience more and more people who the disciples will uh, turn apostles, will engage with in the acts uh, of the apostles. And, uh, and I also think about all the churches that Paul started, all those letters to the Galatians and the Ephesians and the Corinthians, these people who weren't at Pentecost, and yet they have faith. They're moved in their hearts by what's happening. And I think about the church of today. We weren't at that moment, but what stirs in us? And I think about the church of tomorrow. The church of tomorrow will be different than the church of today. A few things will stand. Even the young adults who don't go to worship, statistically, they still identify Sunday morning as worship time. And whenever a church is trying to plant a new worship service, Sunday mornings is still uh, the way to go. They've, and also, Young people, whether or not they're in worship, they value ancient rituals. There are more millennials lighting candles than a monk on Monday these days. Yet what brings us together is changing. 
how we understand the holy uh, is not what it once was. Today's church has to pay attention to this. So Pew Research is a research uh, organization that I respect quite a bit. And last spring, they released some new results from some of their latest surveys. And what they found is that in the United States, looking at the religious landscape, 90% of Americans believe in some kind of higher power. And yet, this might be different for some of us. Only 56% profess faith in God as described in the Bible. While 33% say that they prescribe to another type of higher power or spiritual force. And they don't maybe know what that is, but they're not necessarily thinking it's the God of the Bible. And then 10% say that they don't have a belief in God, and while it is small, it is growing, and it's growing younger. So with a mix of traditions and new ideas and amalgamated attempts at creativity, the church, capital C Church, our local church, we get to decide how are we a place where all of these people are welcome for where they are on their journey of faith. What kind of a church do we want to vision ourselves into being? Because it's one thing to say all are welcome. It's another thing to do the work to make sure it's true. We have to put ourselves in the shoes of someone who is open to experiencing Jesus for the first time and asking ourselves, how am I showing Jesus? Someone comes to worship, perhaps, and they've never been here. Uh, Now, that's not like being five minutes late to a movie. That's like being 50 years late to traditions and patterns and preferences and who sits in which pew and don't sit in that pew, that kind of thing, right? And some of you are chuckling at that. How shall we each take it upon ourselves to show them Jesus? Or how about our neighbors who come in for an event like the carnival on August 17th, but then they don't make it to worship the next day, so they miss that opportunity. And yet, while we have them here and now and present on our campus, how shall we show them Jesus? That matters too. How do we show them Jesus in this here and now, in the moments when life is a particularly challenging season and people are asking, what does this mean? Are we prepared to respond? How are we prepared to show them Jesus? So one way, among many, do we look back to the past to build the future. All of us were new at some point, right? All of us had our first day. Our first day maybe in this congregation or our first day uh, at a congregation. Maybe not as a child, but maybe as somebody a little older with more cognitive development. You're 13 or whatever, you're like, I'm going of my own accord that first day. How were we welcomed? Do you remember who shook your hand? Who was it that made you feel at home? Were there systems in place to help you as a new person know that you mattered here? So one system we have in place is communion. So communion, all are welcome, period. All are welcome for communion uh, in this church, period. But that's not everywhere. Not every house of worship that has Holy Communion has everybody welcome at the table, right? So, so we can never assume that anybody coming into this local church automatically knows that all are welcome at this table because sometimes out in the culture they're not. And so that's why I can tell you for sure every time we do communion, we're going to go through that preamble. 
We're going to say in the United Methodist Church, we practice open communion. That is to say, we place no barrier between you and the Lord's table. All who are seeking the grace of Jesus are welcome. You'll approach by the center aisle, and you'll receive a piece of bread, and you'll dip it in the cup to receive the elements together. You're welcome to pray at the kneelers, and there's a gluten-free option at the center table, and you return by the side aisles. The table is set. All are invited. Let us remember Christ our Lord. And we're going to do that every time we do communion. Now, some of us might think, isn't that skippable? We all know how communion works. But not if it's your first day. Not if it's your first experience of Christian community where you are welcome at the table. I once did communion at a wedding, and uh, I made sure to say that preamble, as I always do, and I learned later from the bride that one of her friends who was at the wedding, who is Muslim, came forward for communion because he had never heard that all could be welcome. And while he does not profess to be a believer in Jesus, the thought of the grace of Jesus, of how we might live in that grace and love of Jesus, that excited that young man, and he came and received. Today's scripture text ends up skippable to many churches, but for those in the upper room, it's the first Christian sermon. It's their first mention of Jesus, and it's not skippable to them. And we now, in 2019, have to put ourselves in the shoes of someone who is open to experiencing Jesus for the first time and asking ourselves, how am I showing Jesus? When Simon Peter relies on the Psalms, he relies on common language. When he reminds him of the promise, one to come from the house of David, he draws a line straight to the risen Christ and to this Holy Spirit-filled moment at Pentecost. And he connects that one small step for you is one giant leap for everyone. And when he finishes his sermon, his response to this question, what does this mean? Simon Peter will be confronted with the new question that we'll explore next week, which is, what should we do? These are the two questions that the church is called to respond to over and over again in our society. What does this mean and what should we do? How are we as a church prepared to respond to these critical questions in our culture? So may we embrace our calling to be such a church. May the Spirit break through to our community. And may the work not feel skippable, but fulfilling and resurrecting. May it be so and amen. This has been a sermon podcast from Richfield United Methodist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Copyright 2019. Now go into God's world knowing you are a beloved child and bear witness to the love of God so that those to whom love is a stranger will find in you a generous friend. Thanks for listening.